This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. My name is Kelsey Waddell, and I'm the editor of Healthcare Intelligence. July 1st, 2021 is a date that payer executives probably can't stop thinking about at the moment. Um, By July 1st, CMS-regulated payers will have to be in compliance with certain CMS and ONC regulations. The regulations require payers to provide APIs or apps that enable patients to see their healthcare claims data and costs and make provider directories publicly available. These regulations are part of a larger push toward interoperability in the healthcare industry overall. The interoperability effort is a far-reaching endeavor. It has multiple phases and will require changes in processes and strategy, technology, and program design. And it will require collaboration between payers, providers, vendors, and patients. So here to illuminate more about the challenges and opportunities of both the immediate deadline and the overarching goals of this effort is Danielle Lloyd, Senior Vice President of Private Market Innovations and Quality Initiatives for Clinical Affairs at AHIP. Danielle has worked in both the private and public sectors in the past. She held roles in insurer and hospital organizations. And in her current role, Danielle is responsible for assessing insurance market trends and developing policy in the areas of emerging payment models, quality measurement, and of course, health information technology interoperability. So Danielle, it's great to have you on Healthcare Strategies today. Great to be here. Thanks, Kelsey. So let's start out with an overview about what AHIP has been doing to help payers prepare for interoperability. I know um, your organization has been very involved for obvious reasons in keeping the payer industry aware of developments and resources. So how has AHIP been supporting its members as they seek to comply with these interoperability deadlines? Yeah, well, let's start off with the who is AHIP, and then we can talk about what we've been doing for our members. So AHIP is the National Trade Association whose members provide healthcare coverage, services, solutions to millions of Americans across uh, the country every day. And uh, as a trade association, we do support our members extensively on these health information technology rules. And I would add to that uh, transparency rules as well that are all interrelated. And, you know, when you think back, when we started this endeavor, when I, I started at AHIP in 2018, And, you know, the payers weren't really part of the conversations on interoperability. It had largely been focused on providers and meaningful use of electronic health records and such. Um, So we started a health information technology and interoperability work group. And thank heavens we did because it's been fast and furious over the past few years. But when you think about AHIP's membership, back to the who we are part, we have the gamut of um, health insurers, right? So we have some integrated delivery network plans, where it's the providers and the plans together that serve fewer than 50,000 enrollees, right? All the way up to major national carriers. So I I have to say the beginning of this was really the basics, right? APIs or application programming interfaces, as you mentioned, are not household names. (laughs) What what are APIs? There's a lot of technical jargon and new concepts in these rules that we, you know, had to start out with. So there's a lot of education on, and I would say education in small, medium, large packages, right, of the 
how much is a, a CEO going to read versus how much is a policy person going to read it versus what's the IT professional going to read, right? Whether it's slides or written documents, et cetera, because we know as adults, we learn differently, right? Each of us. So that's been a, a major component. But I would say one of the concerns once the final rules came out was really about how some aspects of these regulations are quite vague. And the fact that it's not just the regulations that you have to be reading, you also have to be looking at the standards and the implementation guides and how those uh, fit together. So we did do a Q&A process with CMS and to some extent, the Office of the National Coordinator for HIT or ONC, because they were concerned based on various legal issues about putting out Q&As on their own. So we had a process with them, an ongoing process that's still there. The list gets longer and longer with, with every day, especially as we approach the deadlines. And CMS is just now, due to these new good guidance um, process, starting to put out their own Q&As. But that, that really, I think, was helpful to, to dig into the pieces. You know, there's also, we, we've been in the virtual world, right? So when you think about when this first rule came out, the HIMSS event, as an example, was canceled. And a lot of our members said, shoot, I was planning on going from vendor to vendor, and we don't have that now. So we, we started to get creative with bringing the government officials onto webinars, bringing the standards officials onto webinars, and having almost like speed dating for vendors, right? You know, how can we have little sessions where you could say, okay, these are the ones I want to now go meet with officially. So we've tried to have sort of a broader perspective and try to be creative within, within the, the pandemic as everyone has had to be, right? To support our, our members and help them really understand not just the ethos of where we're going, but an immense amount of detail. Yeah. I mean, just going through some of the resources myself, I mean, there is so much for them to tackle in this. And I read recently a PricewaterhouseCoopers article that broke it down into five segments, but even those five segments are a little overwhelming to look at strategy and governments, program design, operational readiness, technology and data, and they kind of lump compliance, security and privacy all together. And um, all those pieces that are kind of moving and that they need to meet certain criteria for in different ways. There's both like the overarching goals, like as you, as you just mentioned, and then there's these nitty gritty things that need to be dealt with. So on that note, what advice would you give to payers as they try to juggle all of these different elements? Yeah. Um, so first of all, uh, let's start with what I would say to myself or my children, right? One foot in front of the other, mm. <laughs> right? <laughs> You know, not, not, not to speak in platitudes, but you can't boil the ocean, right? Yeah. I mean, as you said, even just the buckets that you rattled off is overwhelming. It's overwhelming on a good day, and we're in the middle of a pandemic <laughs> where there's all sorts of constraints. So this is something where it's going to have to be a journey, right? And, and one step at a time. But I think the first place strategy, I think, was the first one you mentioned. That that's absolutely the the place to start, right? And thinking about this, of are you kind of bolting on some some things to meet requirements, or are you taking the opportunity to step back and see this as an opportunity, and think about how does this fit in my plan's vision going forward, right? Of what we were planning to do anyway. 
and what you envision the relationship between the payer and the consumer and the payer and the provider, right? And trying to get it into that overarching strategy so that you know everyone can move together forward on, on the work that has to be done because it's going to have to be all hands on deck in some respects. Um, and, and I think that's part of when you're designing these, right? This is not just a health IT thing, mm-hmm. right? Finance, absolutely. It's, you know, this is pretty expensive to implement and human resources. So in terms of, you know, maybe for some of the early steps, you're using a vendor, maybe long-term you want to build out your staff or maybe vice versa, right? You have to think about, do you have the right people to do this? If it's not and it's a vendor, you're, you're going to need legal for many, many reasons on this. You're going to need to be looking at, you know, uh, one of the things that we had heard, you know, early on is organizations were just having trouble getting the contracts through just because, again, of the organizations being overwhelmed and all the things that you have to, to think about. So, I, I mean, I think with legal also, there's the compliance aspects that you have to be thinking about. and. One piece of advice I would give there is document, 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 document. Mm. In the event that you just happen to not quite make that deadline, you want to be able to show that there was a real good faith effort to get there. It has been very trying with an evolving landscape of the standards and such. And so you, you want to make sure that you've really documented what you've been doing and to participate in the standards aspect, what I was saying before, right, of it's not just the written regulations, you have to pick up with content standards from ONC, the US CDI, US Core Data for Interoperability, the clinical content, um, you have to be watching that. That just went through comments. Um, you have to be working with organizations like the Da Vinci Project within HL7 to see where the standards are, are going. And, you know, thinking about in sort of the bigger picture, uh, participating in things like the ONC uh, FAST program, which is uh, the Fire at Scale Task Force, because there, there is an underlying infrastructure to all of this. And part of what we're trying to do is make sure that these processes are efficient and are scalable, right? And so that's part of what they're doing is looking at, how, you know, how do we have sort of a common infrastructure to, to make sure that this is scalable in a reasonably fast, efficient way. You mentioned uh, privacy. Mm-hmm. Privacy is, I think, the Achilles heel here. We are about to put out an inordinate amount of very sensitive, detailed information. And the way CMS has set this up, that information is no longer part of HIPAA once it arrives at that third-party app, right? the payer's responsibility for the privacy and security all the way in transmission until it gets there. Who, who reads the HIPAA <laughs> letter, right? You, you get them at all. I think I'm the only person who actually asks for them when they don't give it to you. And I, I keep all of mine, but you know, I'm a policy wonk. Um, <laughs> people have a sense, right? That, that your healthcare data is held to a pretty high standard, even if they don't understand the nuances of HIPAA, right? Yeah, But at the same time, I don't think that they're going to be able to look at the fine print in terms and agreements and really understand that the information can be 
sold at an identifiable level, right? Danielle Lloyd on this day had this claim, right? Um, not only that, um, you know, you, you think about de-identified databases. When you look at the literature, the more individual information that's out there, the easier it is to then identify databases that are de-identified. So it's kind of like a key to opening up those databases and getting additional information out of there. So we've really been pushing the administration with, with Congress that we have to figure out a way to fill this gap in, in the privacy framework that just wasn't anticipated, right? It, the technologies weren't there. We sort of didn't realize how this was going to go. And so really thinking about is there a way to have some sort of HIPAA-like process or standard? Um, you know, the Federal Trade Commission has authority over these apps. Um, you know, what is what more can they do? Can they have a certification program of these apps? Or do they need more authority? How do we make sure that as we open this Pandora's box, the, the patients are, you know, protected? You know, I think the only other thing I would say here is, Again, it's not just about IT. So when you think about the, the privacy component as an example, or you think about the fact in these rules that the payers have to provide educational materials to the consumers, right? You know, I was joking with a federal official one day saying on our websites, you know, can we put blinking flashing lights that say leaving the land of HIPAA? <laughs> Beware, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and it's, it, yeah. right, it's in fact, require that the plans are communicating some of the potential pitfalls to uh, the, the consumers, right? So there is a, a beneficiary education perspective, education within your own plan, and there is expectations around your subcontractors, right? So if, if a plan has uh, behavioral health or dental or vision or pharmacy or something that maybe they don't operate in the main plan, you know, if you're in Medicare Advantage, if, if it's a Medicaid plan or a Medicaid state fee-for-service or qualified health plans in the marketplaces, you have to be complying with all of this. And it doesn't matter, right, if you've got a subcontractor for behavioral health, that information has to roll up and be seamless to the, to the consumer, to the beneficiary, right? They need to be able to sign in one time and see all of, all of their information. So um, I think I just made it worse, right? In terms of you saying this was overwhelming, it, it is. <laughs> but but hopefully there was a, a few few nuggets of uh, advice along the way there. Yeah, documenting your efforts part really struck me as a key point there. And um, and then of course communication with consumers is something that has been coming up quite a lot in in my conversations with the payers as well. It's like, this is going to be a big part of this effort in general is making sure that consumers as much as they can be are prepared for this. So kind of along those lines, beyond the July 1st deadline, going forward after that, what are the next steps that payers should be looking at and how can they better prepare for those steps? Yeah. So first of all, when you think about this, this first rule, right, the interoperability and patient access rule, that technically had a deadline of January 1, 2021 <laughs> um, for the what, what are called the patient access API and the provider directory APIs. You know, CMS gave the payers an enforcement discretion 
So they, they basically said, we're not going to go after you until July 1 of 2021. Um, you know, even that didn't sit well with plans in terms of you think of those subcontractors in ex, as an example of, of don't forget them of saying, well, I have a contractual obligation to meet the regulatory requirements. So many of those were, were still trying to make January 1 and some plans did make January 1. But a lot of plans, given the pandemic, really needed that that extra six months. And so, you know, that's the piece where you're giving out information from the payer to a third party app at the behest of a consumer at an individual level, whether it's uh, claims information like an explanation of benefit type of information or clinical information, which is a little bit awkward for payers because the clinical information payers get are usually part of a quality measure or part of prior authorization. It might be a single lab value or a single test value. It's a little bit awkward for the, the payers to have to give out the, the clinical information, but that has to go out to the patient API. And the, the second piece is without beneficiaries or enrollees requesting it, they have to make that provider directory and formulary information and other stuff available because that's information that's really needed to shop for a plan, right? So it's not necessarily once you're in the plan, it's how do you pick a plan? That's the first piece. What's coming is January 1 of this coming year is the payer-to-payer interaction. And so I'll put this in my my own personal view of it. That was seen as uh, sort of a workaround for longitudinal health records. So how do we take uh, the claims information from one payer as someone changes plans and pass it to the next payer and to the next payer and to the next payer, right? So how do you have an accumulation over time of the claims information? Sounds great, much harder to do in reality, right? The plans have disparate systems. This information is not just plug and play. There's a lot of work from an implementation perspective, right? Um, I mean, when you think about the plans themselves, even those who have bought other uh, plans, right, there's been mergers and acquisitions, those systems are already disparate within it. And then you're adding another payer's information. Um, So there's a lot of technical work behind the scenes to sort of get the data together and and standardized in some way um, to put out all this sort of information. And so it just becomes one step harder when it's another payer's information that you're putting on here. But to some extent, we have a roadmap, right? Because CMS also put out the interoperability and prior authorization proposed rule. That was, I I would say, Habsies finalized in that CMS put it up on their website. They said it was final, but they never got it in the federal register, which is the official you know, location that you have to publish something for a regulation to become official. And it thus went into the hold window when the new administration came in. So as of now, it is a proposed rule on the books and the new administration has to decide if they're going to publish that, right, as is and make it final, or if they're going to take a second crack at it or drop it. I think reality is, if I you know look into a crystal ball, they left out a huge constituency in the first round of that rule, being the Medicare Advantage plans who were in the first rule. Um, that, that was going to create a lot of confusion, um, a lot of disconnects in the policy. Um, so if, if I were a betting woman, I'd say they're probably going to rewrite the rule and include that constituency and maybe put their own stamp 
right, as a new administration and a new administrator coming in who, who was just confirmed. So I think we're going to see some version of that again. Um, and so that's where we really are focusing people on that notion of stepping back and thinking about where you want to go. You have some blueprints, right? So we know that the pair-to-pair communication, CMS didn't specify a standard. You can pretty much assume it's going to be a fire-based standard as was proposed in the rule that's held, right? You can pretty much assume that there's going to be some form of prior authorization requirements, whether that's how you can electronically have it so that providers can figure out what the rules are and how you you document, right, what's needed to get a prior auth through, or going all the way forward with this notion of electronic prior authorization. Something in that area we we can assume is still going to be in there. And the other major component is this notion of, uh, you know, because we've switched in this role, right? Um, It's not just about getting data from, from payers to consumers. It's also about getting data from payers to payers, as we said, but the last one is payers to providers. So this prior authorization piece is that that loop between those two constituencies. And in addition to prior authorization, there's this notion of sort of population health level data. So a lot of the providers, you know, our plans have been working with them to move to, you know, what are known as value-based payments or alternative payment models. And within that, it is, you know, if you're responsible for total cost of care, you want to know as a provider, where are these enrollees going? What what services are they getting? So finding a way to standardize that, I think, is an area the government's really interested in. The payers certainly provide data to to their practices. I think the issue is whether or not there's a, a more standardized electronic transaction, right, that can be accomplished through that. So we know the sort of immediate steps. We have a sense of the middle range steps. What we're going to have to see to some extent is how this new administration and this new administrator at CMS views sort of the long-term vision piece of it, right? And so we're waiting, you know, for the new administrator to get in and share uh, her perspective on that. Yeah. Definitely. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have. But um, thank you so much, uh, Danielle, for coming on today and speaking on this really important subject. Great. Thanks for having me. We had the opportunity to have Danielle back on the Healthcare Strategies podcast to continue this conversation at a sort of higher level. She came back to discuss the big picture of what is the vision behind these interoperability changes? What is the big why behind what we're doing and the major changes that are taking place within the healthcare industry at this point? So if you're interested in hearing more about that, please stay tuned and check back in on Monday morning next week to hear the rest of that conversation. Listeners, we'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Feel free to reach out to me at kwadil at extelligentmedia.com. That's K-W-A-D-D-I-L-L at extelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts. You can also use that email to let us know if there are any health industry related questions or stories you would like us to consider covering. And if you liked this episode and it sparked some thoughts for you, please head over to Apple and give us a few stars and a positive review. Thank you for listening. 
This has been an Intelligent Healthcare Media production.